Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 177. In this episode, we're talking about Jesus versus evangelicals with Dr. Constantine Campbell. Dr. Constantine Campbell is professor and associate research director at the Sydney College of Divinity and the author of a number of works on biblical studies in ancient Greek, as well as the book that we're excited to talk about in this episode, Jesus versus Evangelicals, a biblical critique of a wayward movement published by Zondervan Reflective. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stanley Ng, Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So it was an absolute blast to have Dr. Campbell on to talk about his new book, Jesus versus Evangelicals. And this was really just a great conversation about certain problems as Khan sees it with American evangelicalism from his uh, vantage point uh, across the pond in Australia and from some of his own personal experience, as he describes uh, in this episode. But really, some of the, the things that he's pointing out and calling us to are really simple truths that I think evangelicals have just lost sight of for some reason. And uh, just really appreciated his emphasis on on the Bible and the, and the character of God, especially as seen in the character of Jesus. So Chris and Stan, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. Campbell? Yeah, I've known Con for quite a long time since he was part of the university student movement uh, that I was as well. And uh, he's always been a straight hitter. Uh, he's been one to put things uh, in a gentle and cons- and open way, but in a very consistent way. And so I re- really appreciate this book uh, and his conversation with us in, in thinking through some of the challenges of a movement that he, in, in the majority, still identifies with and the way that he's been able to to give us a, a really solid heuristic for for what it means to be an evangelical and, and in, indeed many of the ways that uh, evangelicalism is betraying itself um, in, in its modern uh, guise. Yeah, it was great just having this conversation with Khan, especially as um, as an Asian American Christian myself, and just hearing from just his research in um, American evangelicalism, it was and just how it's impacted uh, my life, both positive and ne- and negatively as well. I love just how he's able to lay it out in a very gracious way, a kind-hearted way, and a very gentle heart in a gentle spirited way that is communicative not just only to me, but I hope to our listeners as well. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Constantine Campbell. Well, Dr. Campbell, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Good to be here. So we're really excited to talk about your book, Jesus versus Evangelicals, which is the least provocative title that uh, you could have chosen for this book. (laughs) I thought so. (laughs) Not incendiary at all. So how about we just begin with like a flyover? Um, What's like your main contention uh, and what's the what's the beef that you see between Jesus and Evangelicals? Mm. Well, uh, as you know, it's primarily a book about American evangelicalism, but not exclusively. And, and of course, it's, it's difficult to generalize, but if we take the evangelical culture as a whole, uh, it's become, I believe, too politicized and partisan, and uh, it has several other cultural problems, such as tribalism, uh, judgmentalism, a kind of catalog of acceptable and unacceptable sins. Um, uh, too much fascination with celebrity and size. and But un- underneath and running through all of this is, I believe, an, an unhealthy pursuit of worldly power and um, uh, trying to influence the culture and influence political outcomes through um, a trust in power rather than grace and humility. Uh, and operating through love. So, you know, the, it's in that sort of ballpark. Now, Con, for our listeners, they would probably be able to tell from your accent that your uh, critique is coming from the outside. Do you want to give us a bit of a, a potted history on 
uh, your um, involvement with within and without evangelicalism, or within and outside of evangelicalism? So I lived in the States for nearly six years and, and taught uh, at a well-known evangelical seminary and a divinity school. Um, but even before that, I've been a long and frequent, long-term and frequent visitor to the States. I think I first came to America when I was 20 for a music tour playing jazz up and down the West Coast. Um, and then almost every year for the last 15 years or so, I've been visiting the States and um, I've always had a love for the US. Um, and in fact, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was born in the US. So I always felt like, you know, I had a bit of American in me, if you like. Um, and so my critique of American evangelicalism is as an outsider, but not as a disinterested outsider and not as an outsider who doesn't, I feel, understand um, what's been going on within U.S. evangelicalism. Uh, I'm also, if I focus on the evangelical part, I became a Christian through an evangelical church in Australia. I was ordained in the Anglican Church of Australia through the Sydney Diocese, which is sort of famous or infamous, depending who you ask, for being uh, robustly evangelical. And uh, I've taught exclusively in uh, evangelical institutions until now, uh, where I'm teaching in a, in a sort of more ecumenical context. Um, so my academic work as a New Testament scholar has uh, regularly been published by evangelical publishing houses giving papers at the Evangelical Theological Society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, um, both the American part and the evangelical part, I've sort of got skin in the game, if you like. So, um, Khan, thanks so, thanks so much for that. Um, I, I think one thing that could be helpful as we dive in, start diving into um, just the book itself, obviously, you know, we, we, want, we want to encourage our readers to... <laughs> To pick the book and uh, and, and give it a good read themselves, um, but uh, can can you just walk us through? Um, I'm interested in just hearing kind of um, you know your uh, just how you've pieced things together as you've um, you know, from historically in terms of evangelicalism. I mean, maybe even starting with just the definition of evangelicalism and uh, walking us through just um, some of these markers that we've seen, that we've, um, that we've seen. I know you mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, there's um, sometimes this tipping point where now evangelicalism has been politicized. Um, it, it, can you just walk us through uh, just the definition um, of, of evangelicalism mm -hmm. And um, just historically, it uh, gives us an overview of uh, kind of how it's played out uh, up to this point. Yeah, sure, Stan. So part of the problem with evangelicalism is actually very difficult to define. Um, uh, Bevington's classic definition of a British evangelicalism focuses on four characteristics, which are crucicentrism, a focus on the, the death of Jesus, biblicism, a focus on the authority of the Bible, conversionism, a focus on um, having getting people converted and activism. So uh, the sort of characteristic of being quite active in evangelism uh, and ministry in general. Um, but that really describes British evangelicals from a typical uh, from a particular period of history. And it doesn't necessarily des describe evangelicals in America today. Um, in fact, you know George Marston's probably the preeminent um, historian on, American evangelicalism, and there are some similarities, but uh, it's also quite different. In my book, um, I sort of, rather than uh, sort of try to analyse evangelicalism through country and culture, because, you know, British evangelicals are different from US, which are different from Australian, which is different from Kenyan, etc. I sort of uh, try to approach evangelicalism through three main uh, you know, types. And one is what I would call a theological evangelicalism. Another is a cultural evangelicalism and another is political evangelicalism. And the theological evangelicals are the ones who are sort of evangelical by theological conviction. And they're the ones that have closest ties to the history of the term going back 500 years to the Protestant Reformation. And, and these are people who are committed to the centrality of Jesus' atoning death for our sins, um, the authority 
of the Bible as the supreme authority in matters of life and faith, uh, and certain other theological things that go in in that bundle. But that's sort of, you know, uh, a rough description of it. Whereas cultural evangelicalism is influenced by theological evangelicalism, but sort of more understands that there are people who are sort of caught up in this culture who aren't necessarily in it for its theological distinctives, but more because of the crowd they run in. You know, it might be because of the church they go to or, or the community they're part of or the school communities, uh, whatever it might be. But they've sort of identified themselves as evangelical because that that's the best label and their friends fit that label. And, you know, um, they sort of had a, a certain outlook on how to live in the world and, and that sort of thing. Um, the third group, political evangelicals, who are um, evangelical, self-identify as evangelical, but they they really see themselves as having a set of political commitments, usually on the right of politics. Um, and there are certain political issues that they're very passionate about, uh, such as abortion, um, sometimes protecting gun rights, not necessarily, uh, but uh, a little bit sort of more anti-immigration, that sort of thing. Um, definitely anti-LGBTQI plus type stuff. Uh, Want to get Supreme Court conservative uh, justices on the Supreme Court bench and things like that. Now, in, in my book, I sort of argue that um, an evangelical could belong to any one of those categories, sometimes two and, and maybe even three of those. But if they don't belong to any of those, then they're not in any meaningful sense an evangelical. So it's a very broad definition, but I feel like evangelicalism, especially in America, is very broad. And, and so this is a way of trying to get a handle on how, how the term is being used in different ways um, and who's sort of who it describes according to different uses of the term. Thanks for that. I find that to be a very helpful uh, overview. And, you know, it's, it seems to me like when people hear the word evangelical, they're really just thinking about that political term, especially outsiders. Um, you know, when you hear evangelical used on Fox News or CNN, you have a particular set of expectations, and it has nothing to do with uh, the theological side uh, of that. And, you know, for somebody like myself who probably wants to identify with that theological version of evangelicalism, uh, it's tough because it 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 almost seems like it's a, a kind of false etymology. Like we're holding on to a meaning of a term that is not actually in use anymore, uh, and and it has come to mean something else. And so, um, do you, do you see it as a term that you personally would like to abandon for something else? Um, if labels, you know, matter, uh, does it matter that we always have to qualify the hell out of a term like evangelical? <laughs> Yeah, I really relate to that struggle, especially being in Australia, where evangelicals see themselves as quite different from American evangelicals anyway, let alone the political version. And so for years, I've sort of felt like I had to qualify. Well, you know, I, I call myself an evangelical, but not like that. I don't mean that. And the problem is um, the media is so powerful and, and, and the world media is so US-centric that however the media is using the term is generally going to be how the general population will use the term. And you can special plead and say, well, no, the word means this, and it goes back to the Greek word, the evangel, which means the gospel, and that's the true meaning of evangelicalism. But it's a truism of linguistics that meaning is determined by usage. Um, so you can argue to your blue in the face that the meaning of literal is not figurative. Like, I literally died is a nonsensical statement if you take the literal meaning of literal. But the reality is the usage of the word is so common as a figurative sense that the meaning has actually changed. And you might not like that, especially if you're a grammar Nazi, uh, as I am. Um, but the, even the Oxford English Dictionary has included under one of the uses of the word literal, figurative. So that just represents the fact that languages change, etymology changes, the word nice didn't mean what it means now. Uh, and the word evangelical doesn't mean now what it once meant. And that's just a fact. Um, and you can you can tell that very clearly by paying attention to the media, but also just having conversations with people who are on the outside. Um, what does the word mean to the general public? So in the book, I wrestle with this in the last chapter and sort of say, well, you can either 
cling hard to the label and, and try to tell people that they're wrong the way they're using it. And this is what I mean and have a heavy set of qualifications whenever you use the term. That's one option. You can try to redefine the label for the whole public and, and say, go on a grand like project so that everyone understands properly what evangelicalism means. Or you can abandon the term. And I sort of lean pretty strongly on the third option because um, I think I'm a realist and I think that's um, historically, if, if we look at the way things happen historically, that's that seems to be the most sensible. Uh, and I'm drawing an analogy to the term fundamentalism, which originally, when it was first began being used, was quite a healthy term that referred to, we are Christians who focus on the fundamentals of faith. You know, um, the commitment to the Bible, the commitment to the death and resurrection of Jesus, things that Christians have held, regardless of denomination, regardless of theological stripe, they've held to these commitments for 2000 years. And that's that's what a fundamentalist is. But of course, that's not what fundamentalism means anymore. Uh, and we, we take it to mean something entirely different, like a kind of anti-intellectualism and a sort of hyper-conservative view on issues like six-day creation and, um, you know, how to read the Bible in a, in a very literalistic kind of way and so on and so forth. So the, the fundamentalists from 120 years ago would not be comfortable using that label of themselves now. And that's actually why in the 1940s, fundamentalists realized they had a branding problem and changed their name to evangelical. <laughs> so, um, so I sort of suggest in the book that if fundamentalists were smart enough to rebrand to become evangelicals, are evangelicals today smart enough to rebrand to become something else? Really interested with trying to define this term evangelical, and and you've highlighted helpfully the difficulties of creating a positive construction of it, um, as in defining what the content of it is. Uh, one of the points you make in the book is that actually a lot of the time evangelicals uh, define themselves not by who they are, but by who they're not. Uh, the the barriers and the boundaries that exist around evangelicalism. Uh, interesting in, in in your critique of that, and also uh, how how you think Jesus would critique the, those sort of sorts of approaches to uh, group identity. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I think particularly in chapter two, where um, I discuss exclusion zones. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's part of, yeah, it's part of a kind of culture war mentality where, uh, evangelicals sort of get caught up in an us and them approach to the wider culture and other groups who they perceive as being out to get them. And of course, this problem is not unique to evangelicals. Um, there are lots of groups who operate in this sort of way. Um, but it is fundamentally a tribal way and, and not a happy tribe where the tribes get along and, and meet together and, um, you know, live in peaceful harmony, but a sort of more warring tribe uh, approach. And I think that this is very destructive uh, and, and toxic and a big problem um, because it's very difficult to uphold a message that at its core is a message of love and of peace uh, and of removing barriers, uh, both our, the barriers between sinful human beings and their loving God, but also barriers between human beings. And um, it's very hard to promote that message while at the same time behaving in a certain way that undermines the message. And I think this is, this is one of the problems that I try to put my finger on in the book, is that there's a difference between evangelical theology, which may or may not have problems of its own, but there's a difference between theological convictions and the way that people actually behave, and especially the way cultures behave uh, in, in the wider uh, realm, in the wider world. And those two things don't necessarily match up. And so evangelicals need to be very careful when their actions and their speech and their political activity actually undermine key theological commitments um and 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 sometimes there's a there's a rationalization for that there's a well our political activity or or our social exclusion activity that's that's because of you know we're trying to enact on some 
theological commitment here. But actually, I would say in in, in a number of situations, it's it's not the most healthy expression of that theological commitment. And I keep wanting to come back to, and I keep pushing readers to come back to the way of Jesus. You know, how how did Jesus interact with people? Uh, how did Jesus teach his disciples to interact with people? And how do they embody the teaching of Jesus in those interactions and relationships? So we can't be sort of theologically abstracted so that an evangelical is about these theological commitments and and the way that you enforce them or communicate them or live them doesn't matter uh especially when we're in this age of cultural war i'm gonna fight damn it you know and uh be a good soldier for christ jesus that sort of language from the pastoral epistles um when in actual fact the message itself encourages you to act in a different way and to relate in a different way even when there's genuine persecution coming at you i'd love to just um kind of get some uh some more discussion and thoughts about uh you know you brought up tribalism and uh, cult and uh you know just um and how evangelicalism is informing culture or it's even going against culture um for myself as someone who's from the asian american church um even the you know one thing that we that one thing that we always say is that you know as an asian american um i'm not asian enough yet i'm not american enough and you know that's from a from a cultural slash societal side and then when we enter into the church and we are um uh, I'm, I'm in, I'm pastoring or I'm, I'm part of, of an Asian American church. It's something you kind of have that as well um, of, uh, you know, you, you aren't evangelical in terms, you, you are evangelical, but you're kind of not as well. Um, where have you seen these moments where, um, you know, there, there is this fence, but where it, what are some, where are some points where we've seen um, evangelicalism actually, um, let's say, actually maybe really just hurt, uh, or um, it's uh, caused some sort of, um, you know, uh, dissension against uh, just cultures and how that really just breaks down just gospel communication and just leading people just closer to Jesus. Yeah, um, I think those things you describe are, are unfortunate outworkings of tribalism. Now, don't get me wrong, it's it's natural and it's human nature to form groups you know, and, and that can be healthy from like the nuclear family outwards, that sort of thing. And, and those, those groupings are, are important and those relationships are important. And, and it, and it doesn't make sense to sort of eradicate them in the name of the gospel or something like that. But at, at the same time, I think there needs to be uh, a generosity um, and a, and a desire to love those even outside the group. And especially those who are on the margins of groups, uh, as you sort of mentioned, like a lot of people are on the margin of a, of a particular group or on the margin of more than one group, and that puts them in a, in a, in a sort of marginal position, uh, literally, and, and that can be difficult to negotiate. But I think those who are more in the centre of the group, uh, or the tribe is the language I use, actually have a responsibility uh, to those people who are on the periphery. And, and those people on the periphery uh, need to be um, treated with um, humility and respect, but most of all, love and acceptance. And uh, what I would like to see within evangelicalism is an approach that that actually says, okay, this this person over here or this group over here, they're sort of if they're sort of in our group, sort of not. But instead of casting them out or instead of making them feel ostracized, um, let's let's show them love and 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 let's seek to learn from them and and let's allow our core of the group maybe be influenced by them maybe be shaped by them you know and and i think this is a really healthy that would be a really healthy version of having these groups because one of the detriment another detrimental effect of this kind of group group tribalism is that if you focus on the center and you keep focusing on the center then it becomes a sort of sycophantic echo chamber where the power brokers are just making sure that their power is rock solid. And anyone who wants to be more in the center is really um, kissing up to the center, you know? Uh, and, and so they're very careful. You become very careful about articulating views that aren't 
centrist views because that will push you more out to the periphery and the power brokers in the center will say, oh, you know, push. Um, whereas, uh, you know, I'd love those who find themselves in the center of these groups to be more like pull in, you know, or let's have a wider center or, or let's, let's disseminate power and authority here so that it's not caught up in an individual or a tight-knit group who hold the keys to the castle. You know what I'm saying? So, and I've seen this, I see this in America, but I actually see this closer to home in Australia. And I think this is for my Australian readers, it's probably the part of the book that would resonate most strongly. And and I don't sort of, I think I don't name it too directly, but the people in the know will know. Uh, and and there, there's a there's a way in which Australian evangelicalism, the, the greatest threat to it, uh, is not cultural wars. It's not the problems of politicization. It's actually these internal politics um, that are defined by tribes. And um, I think um, that needs to change. Uh, and it it needs needs to be a, a healthier sort of group dynamic where even within your own tribe, there are sub tribes, um, and they're they think each other's evil or they think each other's like lost the gospel or that they're not truly evangelical or something like that. And it's just ridiculous, you know? And if you could step outside your tribe and actually live in the world a little bit more um, and actually get to know people who have nothing to do with Christianity at all, you get a better perspective on how silly those intramural debates and fights are. And I'm not saying that that teasing out good theology is unimportant. Of course, it's important and, and, and those sorts of things, but it should be done in a, a loving, friendly way in the context of understanding that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all part of the body of Christ. Uh, we should get along. We should not demonize one another. As I am already know, uh, some evangelicals are demonizing me for saying these things because it's a very anti-tribal book that I've written that puts me outside the tribe if I'm not already. And and so, you know, whereas it would be healthier if the tribe was like, oh, well, you know, here's an internal critique that we should listen to and, you know, learn from. Um, and, you know, maybe not agree with everything, but are there some things here that we need to listen to? You know, that would be a, a healthier position. Yeah. And I always think it's uh, important to, to to listen to critique, whether internal or external. Um, so that's that's unfortunate. Um, but in, in your subtitle, you 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 refer to evangelicalism as a wayward movement. And I'm just curious, um, where do you think American evangelicalism in particular lost its way? Is there is there an original sin moment? Uh, <laughs> it, was it incremental? Um, you know, is there a place that you point to historically? Uh, do you build upon like, you know, the work of uh, uh, Kristen Kobes Dumay in her in her great book, Jesus and John Wayne, and, and sort of uh, run with something along similar lines? Like, how do you sort of historically um, look at the situation of American evangelicalism and, and find where it went wayward? Yeah, well, you know, I, I come at this as a biblical st scholar, not an historian. So, um, you know, I, uh, that, that there's an important caveat. But uh, Dumais' book was quite influential for me, and I think uh, understanding, especially the, for the politicization of American evangelicalism, it's very helpful over the last seventy-five years or whatever. And I think there was a turn when, um, in the late seventies, uh, evangelicals had. A, a genuinely evangelical believing guy in the White House in Jimmy Carter, a born-again Christian. He actually popularized that term, a born-again Christian. And what a delightful Christian man. Um, but um, that wasn't enough. And when Reagan came along, they saw a, a, mascul a masculine version of conservatism. And evangelicals actually shifted their support from Carter to Reagan, who is not an evangelical, was not an evangelical, arguably not really a Christian, and at least not in a born-again sort of Jimmy Carter kind of way, um, did not necessarily share theological convictions with evangelicals at all. But he was a strong man, presented himself as a strong man who was going to make America great again. And uh, he would push for political outcomes that evangelicals cared about. And so this is an important, this is one of the key things I really learned from Demay is that this is an important shift um, where evangelicals, especially political evangelicals, were actually less interested in 
um, the character, theology, and Christian convictions of leadership, and more interested in getting their desired political outcomes through, regardless of how that's done. And through brute political force is really the way that's done. So uh, I think that is a, a shift. And of course, you know, political evangelicals can rationalize this and justify this and say, well, you know, we don't expect politicians to be Christians and so on. And this isn't a theocracy. So we'll just get the person who will, who will get our things, our policies done. But the problem is, of course, leadership is not only restricted to what you achieve. It's also very importantly about character and the way that a leader shapes culture. Um, and this is Sadly, ironically, one of the things that evangelicals railed against in the Clinton administration, because he was someone who committed adultery, and he was someone who did not have the character who was fit to be in the White House. And if you can't lead your own family, how can you lead the nation? You know, and so evangelicals excoriated Clinton. But then we come along to Trump, who, you know, is just off the charts in terms of uh immorality and uh, lack of character you know he's just a blatant obvious liar and uh, misogynist and woman abuser and just not even ashamed of it um but evangelicals throw their support behind him so what's happened in in that trajectory you know it's basically an abandonment of a commitment to character it's an abandonment of you know we we need morality from the top and just a naked pursuit of we want power regardless of who brings it and that's a huge problem for christians in america that is uh, one of the biggest plot twists of my life is the transition from all the wonderful people that I knew growing up saying um, how terrible Bill Clinton was uh, to singing the praises of Donald Trump. And it's, it is very frustrating and sad. Yeah. And uh, look, I, I don't want to <laughs> um, use too incendiary language, but we might as well, we're already going there, but it's, it's doing a deal with the devil, to be honest, it's, it's selling your soul. Um, because you, you're actually giving up on things that Christianly ought to be very important and dear to you for things that are not Christian at all. Political power is not a Christian value. You know, read the New Testament. That is not part of the mandate for Christians to seize political power and enforce a Christian agenda on the wider society. That's got nothing to do with the teaching of the New Testament, nothing at all. And it's the exact opposite of what the first Christians did. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those uh, almost bizarre parts of our modern narrative, in especially in that. And you critique you critique this in the book is that there's evangelicalism has what you know we might call acceptable sins, bullying, um, you know, abuse of power, and things like that. Many of which are coming to light at the moment, and then unacceptable sins, uh, which you you name several of, including you know divorce, sexual immorality, etc. And yet evangelicalism is seemingly uh, actively siding itself with the unacceptable sins and permitting seemingly trying to abate the unacceptable sins. Interesting in, yeah, can you unpack that a bit more? And then uh, in, since the book's been published and since you've been writing it, have you seen any shifts in, in that happening? Yeah. So the acceptable versus unacceptable sins thing really comes out of, I think, the sort of tribalism problem that we were talking about earlier, because the acceptable sins uh, become acceptable because the tribe treats it that way. And people learn the culture, you by osmosis, you know, it's not like people are making a, a biblical defense necessarily for, for, well, these sins are acceptable and these ones aren't acceptable. In fact, if you pushed anyone on it, they'd say, oh no, well, of course pride is a sin and it's not acceptable. And, and so is bullying and arrogance. Those things are sins, but the culture does says otherwise you know and 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 this is again one of those disjunctions between what you might believe theologically and what you do in practice and what you see the church doing in practice and so the reality is that the evangelical church again generalizing but the american evangelical church in particular has been slow to act uh, with respect to leaders who are known and have been known for years to be bullies to be arrogant to be dominant to be proud 
Um, and these have, these things have been accepted. And eventually, as I show with the case of Driscoll and, and various other leaders like him, um, they eventually become too toxic to r remain. And, and, and you know, the, everything around them collapses and eventually explodes. But the point was in the book that it took seven years from, from the elders of the church initially complaining about Driscoll's um, character and style of leadership as being domineering and arrogant and prideful. It took seven years from that first proper, properly formal complaint with from his elders till when he was actually you know, forced to step down in leadership. Whereas if a church leader commits adultery and it's found out, boom, they're gone like that. So I'm not trying to make a case for adultery, <laughs> um, but I'm trying to show there's a difference in the culture between how these sins are treated. And whereas adultery would be regarded as scandal, you know, absolute scandal, but being a domineering, arrogant so-and-so is sort of like, well, you know, everyone's sinful, you know, no one's perfect. And he has very many gifts and the church is growing. So, you know, this sort of attitude. Um, but in the chapter, I sort of make a case that first look at the way Jesus interacts with people. Okay. Um, people who have committed sin in that sort of, especially sexual arena, but other sorts of sins where they've been, they've been found out or they've been humbled or they've come to him in humility. He is without exception, gentle and merciful. He doesn't pretend they haven't sinned. He doesn't sort of say, oh, well, you know, we're, gonna, we're just going to forget that. No, he says, you know, go and sin no more. Uh, and, but he says your sins are forgiven. So he acknowledges their sins, but he also acknowledges that there's forgiveness and there's grace and there's mercy, and they are in with Jesus, okay? But compare that to the way he interacts with many of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, um, teachers of the law, scribes, and and they uh, attack Jesus or they come at him with a posture of pride, a lack of humility. They're judgmental. And, and Jesus' interaction with them is quite different. Uh, in fact, he is strongly opposed to them. He calls them vipers. He calls them hypocrites. He does not extend mercy to them. He does not. Uh, show kindness to them. You see that the the strong sort of renouncing kind of Jesus in those interactions. So what's going on with those two different reactions from Jesus? I think what's going on is um, he rails against pride because I think his message is one that requires humility. You know, he says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is near. Let's think about those things. Well, repentance is to turn around. It's to acknowledge, well, I'm going in the wrong direction. I need to turn around. That requires humility. Someone who's full of pride, who backs their own judgment 100%, is not actually able to repent because they don't think they're doing anything wrong. Like Trump saying, I don't need God's forgiveness. I've never asked for it. Um, but repentance, but also belief. So belief is, is, is trust in someone. It's allegiance to someone. Um, other than yourself. And so to believe in Jesus is to say, you know, I'm, I'm actually committing myself to him, not to my own way. And that also takes humility. If you're full of pride, it's very difficult to do. So I actually think pride excludes you from Jesus and from the kingdom of God because you're not able to repent and you're not able to believe. So that's kind of my thesis. And then I work it through the rest of the Bible and you see that Pride, I suggest, is the most biblical sin. It is talked about for everywhere from Proverbs and Psalms through to Paul and James and Peter. And um, it's very clear. You know, the Proverbs even says God hates the proud. It's such strong language. God hates the proud. Man, I mean, that's scary stuff. And so, I think evangelicals have a real major cultural problem where people can be proud and not be ashamed of it and, and, and not be called out on it. Uh, but 
you commit adultery or some other sexual sin or divorce, and it's scandal. It's scandal. Even though Jesus is very clear and the Bible is very clear that if you repent and believe, you're forgiven for all your sins. You know, you belong to the family of God. You know, um, so that's what's going on with that acceptable and unacceptable sin issues. It's one area that I think the modern church struggles with uh, construing differences of sin, even though we seem to intrinsically have an idea of it, uh, that there there are uh, differences there. And so interested in what your, um, if if you have any suggestions on, on ways forward on, on that, on that, on those grounds. And yeah, sometimes, you know, a theological response might be, well, all sin is sin, you know, so we don't have a, a list of acceptable and there are no acceptable sins. All sin is sin, but the reality is different and the culture is different. And you know that if you've been in the culture for any length of time, there are some things that you would never a pastor would never confess from the pulpit in front of their congregation. You know, they say, oh, I'm a sinner too. Let me give you an example. And, you know, I actually heard this one time. I thought a pastor was really going to open up and I was, everyone was on the edge of their seats, you know. I said, well, I'm a sinner. Let me share with you some of my terrible, terrible sins. You know, and he said, one time I was in my car. It was a red light, the traffic lights. And I took out my mobile phone. And that's against the law. And I was like, oh, whoa, wow. Oh. <laughs> you know, like, wow, really tell us how bad you are. You know, that sort of thing. Um, so there are sort of mild sins that, that um, you might share from the pulpit or even more serious sins that everyone will go, oh, yeah, yeah, well, me too. You know, like, you know, sometimes I'm a little materialistic. You know, I, uh, I really wanted to buy that shiny thing. And I knew I didn't need it, but I bought it anyway. And everyone's like, yeah, me too. Uh, I've done that every day this week. you know. So it's sin, materialism, but no one really cares because uh, we all do it. It's not scandalized. But how often do you hear a pastor get up in the pulpit and say, you know, um, I've really been struggling with doubt. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder, is this thing all just a cruel fiction? You know, can you imagine hearing that from the pulpit? Everyone be like, what? Whoa, you can't say that. We're in church. You can't say that. Um, or um, a pastor saying, you know, um, look, to be honest with you, I have something to confess. Um, my assistant and I have been getting a bit flirty. And, uh, and you know, I... I'm, it's sin and I need to stop. It's not going to happen, you know. That, you can't imagine that happening. So we, we have an understood, we have an understood kind of list that you learn from being in the culture of what's acceptable to talk about and what's not. And, of course, one of the unfortunate outcomes of all this is that anyone who is secretly harboring one of those unacceptable sins does not feel free to confess it does not feel free to talk about it with people. Maybe a closest friend, maybe with your pastor or, or counselor or something like that. Um, but for many, they just bury it deep, deep down. Um, and that's a problem because God says you can come to him with all your sins and confess them and be free of them. Um, he will take them away as far as the east is from the west. And, and you will know his love and forgiveness and acceptance. So why isn't that message being communicated through the church, not just verbally, because I think it often is communicated verbally in an abstract sense, but it's not, it's not communicated by the culture of the church in many cases, and that's where the problem is. Yeah, I'm, um, actually, just recently, <laughs> uh, within our, we, we just had a small group um, gathering the other night, and um, you know we were doing a sermon, uh, a sermon-based, I guess, small group um, curriculum, just two sheets of paper, right? And um, uh, all the questions that were asked were just these like really heavy-loaded questions. Do you have any, you know? Uh, it, um, do you have any brokenness 
that's going on in your life. That was like question number one was, hey, share about your week. Question number two is, hey, the pray, you know, pray for each other. Question three, do you have any brokenness in your life? <laughs> and then it followed up. And then like the next question, it just dug even deeper with um with with um uh you know is there is there uh any um uh, was there is there something in the past that uh that that you could recall that it, i mean it just went deep right and 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 i'm um, just reflecting on um you know what you said in chris's former question about you know what do we you know what are some things we can do and on one hand um there's, uh, you know, I think what a lot of churches and a lot, a lot of people are looking for are these like little, you know, progressively, like, how do we actually get to this point, you know, versus like, oh, let's just rip the bandaid off. And that's gonna, you know, that's gonna hurt. Mm -hmm. And it made all of our conversations kind of awkward and silent (laughs) at our small group here. Um, On the other hand, to, you know, I, I, you, you, you mentioned this, uh, you know, the word, you know, scandalous, right. Um, it, and I think there's been certain times in our conversation today where we talked about um, being on the, uh, being on the fence of something or, or when has evangelicalism um, uh, have pushed things over too far. And, and uh, this, is, and it seems, it sounds like when, when we use the words uh, uh, scandal, that's like, it seems like that's, it, it's almost like its own, it's a category now. It's like, it, it's only, ex, it's only acceptable, but at the same time, we can't rip it off like a bandaid as hard as we can, because then it becomes very awkward, whether at the pulpit or even in a small group gathering within the community. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to continue the conversation of, you know, when it comes to, you know, the local churches that all of us have, um, that all of us are want to contribute to. What are some small steps we can do that, you know, not to necessarily hide things under the rug, but, you know, these small steps that we can do to um, maybe bring to light or any sort of resources that you think may be helpful for our listeners as they're navigating um, through these, these things. Well, I think, you know, we've, we have been talking about the importance of leadership today. And, and I think um, culture, it's not only up to the leaders, right? culture they're not the only shapers of culture but they are powerful shapers of culture and they can lead by example so if if a leader wants to see a church community become more transparent about their brokenness uh or more sort of honest with themselves about their sin then they can lead from the front and this is a scary thing to do because you know, if you're too honest, you know, you might worry about, well, I might lose my job. You know, the church might say you're not fit to lead or, or whatever, or that they know that there's a culture of judgmentalism. So how do, you, how do you unpack those things? How do you destruct those things? How do you get rid of that judgmentalism? Well, it's got to be led from the front. And in the book, I talk about my friend Mark Dever, who's the pastor at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And I was shocked when he told me that he's 49% agnostic. Because doubt, I think, is one of those unacceptable sins. You can't really talk about it, you know, maybe with close friends, but certainly a leader, a prominent Christian leader, cannot be open and upfront about that. And I said, well, you know, I, I was so shocked. And I said, you know, and then he just said, oh, I told my church that. And I'm like, what? You know, like, so <clears throat> I was so encouraged by that. And I, because, um, I feel like, you know, they're going to be, if a church of a thousand people, they're going to be many of them who are struggling from time to time with doubt. I think all real Christians struggle with doubt at some point. Sometimes it's an ongoing drip, 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 drip sort of thing. And sometimes it's a, a period of intense doubt. But we all do, if we're honest, at some point struggle with it. And how refreshing would it be for all those people in church to hear their beloved pastor say, you know, I struggle with doubt. I'm 49% agnostic. And for all those people to go, oh, it's okay. It's okay to struggle with doubt. And Mark will say, yeah, I mean, that's part of living in the world. We're aliens and strangers. We're going to get bashed and bruised by being in the world um, and, and surrounded by unbelief and our own sinful nature interacting with that. And of course, of course you're going to struggle with doubt, you know, but God is faithful. Don't worry, you know, he'll bring you through. And 
and and um, and you can you can be open about this and 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 seek help and and people who've gone through it can you know can help you and and say oh well, check this out and think about it this you know think about it this way and and so on and <clears throat> how refreshing is that you know and he helped me I went through a season of doubt around that time and he helped me through that he wasn't the only fact of it but he was a, a powerful factor because I could be honest with him about it you know. And he didn't, and I didn't feel judged by him for having that experience. In fact, I just felt grace and mercy and, and love and compassion, you know. So if we can, so first of all, it's little wonder that that everyone at that church loves their pastor because that's how he, that's how he is as a person. Um, and so I think, you know, we need our leaders to start with themselves, with their own character. Um, and develop those qualities of compassion and mercy and love. In other words, to be people who reflect who God is. Because a lot of this comes down to, I think, who do we actually think God is? And we can say, on the one hand, well, God is loving, God is merciful and grace and the grace of God and all this sort of stuff, while secretly harboring beliefs that, no, I think God is like a traffic cop and he's just waiting to pull me over, you know. Um, and that's going to change everything in your Christian life, you know. So um, we, we, we need to have a more accurate, a biblically faithful view of, of God's character, who God is. And the Bible tells us that he is supremely revealed in Jesus. Um, so if you want to know, well, how would God interact with a sinner? Go look at how Jesus interacts with the sinner. You know, if you're seeing Jesus, you're seeing the character of his father. That's what he says about himself. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Philip, John 14. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what that means. Um, and I think our leaders can very powerfully shape who God is by being like him themselves, <laughs> their own character. And that's why it's so devastating when leaders are bullies and arrogant and domineering. It's not only related to this acceptable sin, unacceptable sin thing in evangelical culture. It's actually betraying people because it's teaching them how to think about who God is. That's a betrayal. We need leaders who are humble and gentle and loving and kind and compassionate um, because that, I believe, is who God is um, reflected in the person of Jesus. And if we're not reflecting Jesus and the way of Jesus in our leadership, then we're failing the church big time. Well, I think that's a, a powerful place for us to end this conversation. The The wayward movement of evangelicalism is not reflecting the character of God. And I think that's a, a, a damning and, and convicting thought. So uh, thank you so much for, uh, for writing this book and for your time and joining us today. Thanks so much, guys. I really enjoyed being with you. and. Appreciate it.